from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Heavenly Father, this morning we gather together to be once again reminded of the truth of who you are and what you've done, the truth of how that uh, radically transforms our identities and changes how we get to live. Now, Father, I pray that uh, this morning you would remind us of our past so that we understand our present and our future. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would remind us of your great sacrifice. And Holy Spirit, I pray that the words that people hear this morning are yours and not mine. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you uh, know what it's like uh, to be on the outside looking in? You know, to be on the outside of, of that relationship or be on the outside of that group or on the outside of, of that community, to be on the outside of it looking in and seeing something special there, seeing something desirable there, seeing something that you want to be a part of there, but because of a wall that stands between you and it, you don't have access. Maybe it was as, as a kid that you went out for that team and you didn't make the cut and you found out for the first time that you can't be anything that you want to be. Or, or there's that group of friends in, in your school that they are just the coolest and you desire to be a part of that, that group of people, but you're just not quite cool enough. Or you get a, uh, grow up and, and, and you, you go after that job and you, you find out that that dream job of yours, you don't have quite enough experience for yet. You don't have the education for yet. Or maybe you do have the education. Maybe you do have the experience, but because of your gender or because of your race, you can't have that job. You know what it's like to be on the outside looking in. Or maybe it's a family. And you grew up in a home where maybe you only had one parent and you, you look at the lives of your friends and you see what it, what it must be like to have a mom and a dad living in the same household together. 
Or, or maybe you grew up and, and you were an only child, and so you looked at your friends who had siblings, and you, you desired to have a brother or to have a sister, to know what it was like to have that kind of a family. Maybe you're older now and you're single and you didn't expect to be single at this stage in life and you look at and you see these couples in love and you see the, the, the relationships that they have with one another and you desire to have that for yourself. You desire to know what it's like to have that life partner, that mate. Maybe you found that but you're not able to have kids. You look at those families and you see the joy that those parents have with their children. You long for that. You know what it's like to be on the outside looking in. Maybe it's the church. Maybe you know what it's like to be visiting a church for the first time. Maybe this morning is that first time for you. You walk in and you wonder what it's going to be like. Are, are people going to embrace you? Are they going to befriend you? Are they going to be happy that, they're, that you're there? Are, are you going to be welcomed in? Are you going to feel like you're still on the outside looking, looking in? And the flip side of that is, what does it look like for us to be insiders who keep the outsiders out? Do you have that group of friends that you're just so solid? It's a tight-knit, small group of people that you really, really enjoy hanging out with. And the idea that somebody else could come and sit at that place at the coffee table, it's just, it would be an invasion, right? Or, or there's that, that team that you have in your work environment, a team of people that you have created, and you work along so well together, and you get things accomplished, and you're just, you, you just have this family atmosphere, and all of a sudden your boss goes out and hires somebody else to come into the team, and you just feel like something's off. They change the whole dynamic. Or maybe you look at, at your family this way. Maybe you're a young couple and you, you, your wife or, or your husband is, is maybe starting to talk about having kids and you're like, you realize that if we have kids, that changes this. We don't get to sleep in on Saturday mornings anymore. Like there's some significant changes that will happen to our relationship if we bring kids into this scenario. Maybe you've already got the kids, and maybe you're done with having kids, and you've got your biological family, and it seems complete to you, but then your spouse says, hey, what about adoption? What about those kids who don't have a mom and a dad? We have room. And, and you begin to think through of how that would completely change things. Or maybe it is it is the church. Again, you, you, you've been part of, of new community for a while now, and you look around, and you're like, I like the size of our church. Like, I, I don't want it to grow. Like, the, the dynamic in the parking lot between, you know, gatherings sometimes, it's crowded, and it could be congested out in the foyer. Like, I would be okay if, this, if it didn't grow, because there's already people I don't know, right? And the leadership, they talk about, like, multiplying, like, sending out leaders to other parts of Greene County and, and multiplying gatherings. Like, I hope that doesn't happen because that would change the dynamic of this. Or what about in your house churches? You have that, that family, the, those people that you're doing life together with. And over the course of this last year, you've just grown so much closer together. And the idea that, that two or four of you might leave and go start another house church over, over somewhere else, the, the idea that, that two or four more people might come in to your house church. And, 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 and we, we have these ideas about how do we protect what we have. 
you know, maybe you're, you have that family, it's like you're, you're going a million miles a minute, right? Like you're all spread out and your kids are older and, and they're constantly doing sports or they're doing this and they're doing that and, and you have this family time set aside and it's just family dinner, it's just you and then one of your kids brings a friend in. Changes, you've got to protect this. These precious moments. What is it like to be the insider who is erecting walls that keep people out? The reality is, is that the fall, our broken relationship with God was also affecting our relationships with one another. N not only was our unity with God broken, but our unity with one another is broken. That, that out of that brokenness, there is tribalism and there is exclusion and there is these, all of these attitudes that create barriers between God's people. Not only do we need this to be fixed, but we need this to be fixed too. And so if the cross does that, if the cross makes peace between us and God, does the cross also make peace between us? This morning, uh, we're in Ephesians 2, the second half of it. We've been going through Ephesians now. This is our, our fourth week in it. And uh, um, last week, we looked at the beginning of Ephesians 2, where Paul talks about what we were like before Christ. Spiritually speaking, what we were like before Christ. And Paul says we were dead. We were roadkill. Spiritually speaking, we were dead, completely unable to do anything to save ourselves. And not only were we spiritually dead, we were enslaved. We were enslaved to the world, we were enslaved to Satan, we were enslaved to our own flesh. And on top of that, we were condemned. We were under the wrath of God. But then in verse 4, we saw those two beautiful words, but God. But God, in Christ Jesus, changes everything because he is rich in mercy and love and grace. And, and in Jesus Christ, we who, were, we who were dead are now alive. And we who were slaves are now free. And we who are condemned are now justified. This week, Paul is going to look at the second, in the second half of, of, of Ephesians 2. And, and instead of talking about what we were spiritually, he's going to talk about what we are relationally. What we were relationally, not only relationally to him, but relationally with one another. And how Jesus changes that and what we get to be from that. Now, um, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit this morning because um, this text is it's, it's very rich of allusions from the Old Testament. And so we're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time actually looking at context this morning. There are three things that Paul alludes to in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 that if we don't understand what they mean, we won't understand the fullness of it all. So we're going to spend a little bit of time, most of our time, actually looking at three elements from the Old Testament. We're going to walk through all of redemptive history up to Ephesians, and then we're going to get into the passage. Sound like fun? All right. So there's three things that we need to, to get that were three foundational elements of Jewish life, of Hebrew life, of the life of the Israelites. And the first one is covenant. So Adam and Eve, our first parents, they fail. They completely fail. They, they rebel against God and sin and, and death enter our story. And God decides to go about redeeming it all. And the way that he's going to do that is he's going to use one guy. He's going to start with one guy, a guy named Abram. And he calls Abram and he tells Abram, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. I'm going to bless everybody through you. Let's see, we see that in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 15, God shows up and he makes a covenant with Abram. Now, um, a, a good definition comes from uh, Wayne Grudem. He says this about uh, a covenant. It is an unchangeable, 
Divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. All right, this is a legal agreement between God and humanity. And so God shows up in Genesis 15 to make an agreement with Abram. So here's what he says. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Uh, it's at this point where God says to Abram, um, I'm going to make you, you know, a father of a great nation. You're going to have a, a whole nation of people that comes from you, and, and they are going to be enslaved for a period of about 400 years before I redeem them and, and free, free them from that, from that slavery. And then he goes on. In verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and he goes on to define that a little bit more. But here's what God is saying. I'm gonna be your God, and you're gonna be my people. I'm gonna provide for you, I'm gonna protect you, you're gonna worship me, and you're gonna glorify me, and you're gonna obey me. We're going to have this special relationship. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and you're going to be my special people. And, and, and this covenant is made, this agreement is made between God and man. Now, um, covenants, they, they date back a really, really long time. Uh, the Israelites weren't the only ones who had covenants. They, they were contractual-like agreements that vassals would, would perform for kings. And, and the way that it was looked is you would take animals, and you would slice them in half, and you would lay them, across from each other, and you'd make a path. And you would walk down this path, each, each party in, in, that was making this contract, each party would in turn walk down this path, and they would say, may it be done to me. May this be done to me if I break my promise. That, that if I do not do what I've said I'm going to do, may I be the one that's sliced in half. Now, I want you to notice something about this verse. Who's the one who walks between the animals? It's not Abraham. What we see is a smoking fire pot. In the Exodus, we, we see the allusion to this, that the, that the children of Israel, we were led through the wilderness by a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire. We see it in the tabernacle. These are visual representations of God. What you understand this. The, the person who is walking through the dead carcasses saying, may this be done to me, if this covenant is broken, is God. Keep that in mind when we get to, to Ephesians chapter 2. The second thing to know or learn about is circumcision. We look over two chapters into Genesis 17, and God is continuing to sort of define this covenant relationship. And the first thing we see is that um, God has changed Abram's name to Abraham. And in verse 7, he says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God is saying, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be holy, and you're going to be separate, and you're going to be different than everybody else. And the world is going to look at you, and they're going to see a reflection of me. You're going to be what Adam and Eve failed to be. You're going to be a representation of what I am like, and I am holy. And as a sign of that, every male among you needs to be circumcised. And it goes on in verse 13. It says this, Shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant? Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut from his people. Cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I'm not trying to be vulgar here, but this is what is being said. If you don't cut it off, then you get cut off. That is what circumcision points to. It is this picture that is, it is bloody and painful and extremely private. It is deeply personal. And God is saying that your relationship this way, vertically, is affected by your obedience to this. And if you will not obey me, then you are cut off from your relationships with other people. If you are cut off from me, you're cut off from the community of my people. You're cut off from the community of God. Obedience this way means relationship this way. And if you don't do this, then you're the one who's cut off from your people. Keep that in mind when we get to Ephesians chapter 2. Third element that we need to look at from the Old Testament is temple worship. If we go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God desires to be with his people. We see that, that God enters into the garden and, and Adam and Eve who are hiding at the time because they've just sinned, they're hiding. They hear the footfalls of God walking in the garden. And I can't explain that to you. The Bible says that God is, is spirit and so you know how this particular event happened, I don't really know. But what I do know is that God made himself visible and apprehendable by Adam and Eve so that, that they could know his presence. God had a house key. And he walked into the garden whenever it was convenient. And he had access to the refrigerator. He had a house key. And he was involved in, their peop in, in, in Adam and Eve's life. Like we need to understand that since the very beginning, God has desired to, desired to dwell with his people. But Adam and Eve, they, they reject him. And they reach outside of the relationship. And they bring in sin. And they bring in death. And a holy God does not exist and does not dwell with sin and death. And so Adam and Eve are pushed out of the Garden of Eden. And there are cherubim, there are angels with flaming swords that guard the way and prevent them access to God. But God still desires to dwell with his people. And so many, many years later, Abraham has a son who has a son, who has 12 sons, who has a tribe. 12 tribes of people that grow up in slavery and who are redeemed from that slavery by Moses. And they're led out into the wilderness. And it's there in the wilderness where God reveals himself to them and he gives them his moral law, but he also gives them this ceremonial law, which means to, it means to keep them holy. There are all these rules and regulations about how they were to be different from the whole world. They, they dressed differently, they ate differently, they were completely different. And yet God still dwells to be among them. And so he gives instructions for a tabernacle, a portable tent, that as the people of Israel, as they move through the desert towards the promised land, they're to carry this tent with them. And when they set up camp, they set up the tent right in the middle of it. And it was a place of worship, and it was a place of sacrifice, and it was a place where they would sing. And, 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 and within this tabernacle, there was a special place called the Holy of Holies. 
where the pillar of fire or the cloud of smoke that was leading them, God would come down on that holy of holies and he would dwell in the midst of his people. It wasn't face-to-face. It wasn't perfect. People still didn't have immediate access to him, but God desired to dwell in his people and though it was an imperfect form, it's what they had because God wanted to dwell with them. Later on, this portable temple becomes a permanent temple. I'm going to throw some some pictures up. When Paul wrote this letter, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. Now, there's a big structure right in the middle, and and, and that's the temple itself. It's a gigantic structure, and priests were allowed to walk in there, and there was different services and ministry that they did within the temple. But on the backside of that temple, there was still a big curtain. And on this curtain, there was embroidered these cherubim, these angels that represented the, the, the guarding of the way between humanity and God. And man still doesn't have access to God, but one guy, one high priest, once a year can go in there, but he has to carry with him the blood of an innocent animal. Then he can have access. But only once a year and one guy. Everybody else is outside. And so, if you were Jewish, you could go inside of that area right there. That's called the inner courts. There's the court of women and the, the court of priests. And if you were Jewish, you were allowed access into that part of the Temple Mount. However, if you were a Gentile, if you were non Jewish, you couldn't get in there. And you were restricted to what's called the court of Gentiles. And on the wall that stood in between the court of Gentiles and the inner court was a sign that read this. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. It's not exactly a welcome mat for Gentiles. You are out. But we are in. Loud and clear, there are two dividing walls that we see here. We see a curtain, which is the dividing wall between us and God. But then there's another dividing wall that stands between us and Jews who are in. We need to have these three things in mind when we come back to Ephesians 2. So let's put it all together and let's look at redemptive history. In the beginning, we see our first parents were made to be in right relationship with God and and show the world what God was like. But instead of glorifying him, they sought to glorify themselves and sin and death become a part of our reality. God chooses to redeem. He raises up Abraham. He raises up a people in order to to reveal himself to. And he does something intentional. He, He leaves them in slavery so that he can redeem them from slavery. See, the people of Israel, they were meant to do two things coming out of Egypt. The first is they were meant to be a kingdom of priests. The whole world was meant to look at them and see God. The second thing, though, is that because of their slavery, they were meant to treat foreigners differently. That those people that lived among them, the strangers, the aliens, the the foreigners living among them, they were meant to treat them with kindness and with love and with dignity. They were meant to be different. When we look at the book of Ruth, we, we, we covered that last year, right? Ruth was one of those foreigners who became part of the covenant people of God. Ruth was a Moabite, and she left behind her home, she left behind her gods, and she embraced the God of Naomi. She checked her God at the door, so to speak, and embraced the one true God. And so as, as a result of that, she becomes part of the story. She becomes the great-great-grandmother of David, 
so David, he, he unifies the kingdom, and the, and the kingdom becomes a solid thing under his, under his rule, and he desires to, to take this portable tabernacle and per, turn it into a, a permanent structure, but he can't because he's, he's killed so many people. He's got so much blood on his hands. But his son can, Solomon. Really, really smart guy in many, many ways. But the problem is that Solomon had a lot of wives. And with his wives, they were foreign women, and he didn't demand that they check their gods at the door. They brought their gods with them, and he worshiped them, and his tar- heart was turned away from the one true God, and he built places of worship, and he sacrificed to the gods of his wives. And as the leader goes, so does the country go until Israel falls into just mass idolatry, and God is angry, and he says he's done. And he allows foreign powers to come in, they destroy the temple, and they carry off the Israelites to foreign lands. By the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, there's a remnant of people remaining. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, those people come back in and they rebuild the temple, but they set about to purify themselves. And they put away wives that are of foreign descent. They, they put away wives that worship other gods and they get back to the purity and the simplicity of the people that they were called to be to begin with. But the pendulum swings pretty far. And so when we get to the opening pages of the New Testament, what we find in the Jewish people that remained are a highly racist group of people. That, that they have seen what happens when they allow the foreigner in and they embrace what the foreigner embraces and how that pollutes and corrupts their society. So they swing the pendulum so far the other way that they now become completely racist against people of other bloods. There's an area of Palestine called Samaria. And Samaritans, um, they were descendants of Abraham, but they were also intermarried with, with other people groups. And so they were looked at as half-bloods. And, and a Jewish person traveling from one end of Palestine to the other end of Palestine would go all the way around Samaria so he wouldn't deal with a Samaritan. They didn't want to spend time with, with Gentiles. Anybody who was not purely Jewish, they avoided at all costs. And even though they lived under the reign of Rome, if they could prevent a Roman from coming in their house, they would do it. They would never go into a Roman's house. They would never share a meal with a Roman. They would not allow a Roman to touch them if possible. They had all of these rules and all of these regulations about their, their purity and all of these divisions along those lines. And in steps Jesus. The Son of God takes on flesh and he goes into Samaria. The Son of God takes on flesh and and he heals a Syrophoenician woman's daughter. He deals with Gentiles. He loves Gentiles. He saves and forgives Gentiles. And on the cross, he gives his life for Gentiles. So that after the resurrection, there is this new church, but the church is primarily made up of Jewish people. Until Stephen's persecution in which it goes out and it begins to proselytize, and it begins to communicate the gospel to everybody, including Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 11, we see that the Spirit of God that came on the Jews also came on the Gentiles. These new believers, these new Christians. You see, in Jesus, the dividing walls come down. Now we're ready for Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Don't worry, we only got two more hours to go. Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, relationally speaking, not only were we dead in our sin, Ephesians 2, 1, but relationally speaking with one another, we were outsiders. We were separated from God. We were foreigners. We were, we were outside the community of God. No God, no community, no worship. We were completely on the outside of everything that mattered. Relationally speaking, and Paul sums it up quite well, we were without hope because we were without God. We had no access. We couldn't get in even if we wanted to. We were without hope but God. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far off, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you understand what this means? It means that, that you were a foreigner and now you've become a citizen. Like you were separated and now you've been included. Like you, you were a stranger and now you've been made part of the family. And all that happens because of the blood of Christ. It did not happen because you were good at sports. It didn't happen because you're a really charming guy. It didn't happen because you have a great resume, because of your experience or because of your education. It didn't happen because of your race or because of your gender. It didn't happen because of the, your accolades or your achievements. It didn't happen because of the hoops that you jumped through in life. You are in for one reason, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. There's one thing that turns a stranger into a family member. It's the blood of Jesus. And he goes on, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Not only is our vertical relationship with God now at peace because of him, but our horizontal relationship with one another who has made us both one and he's broken down in his flesh at the cross, in his flesh, the dividing walls come down. Remember the covenant? You remember who it was that walked between the sliced up animals? It was God. It was God who said, if the covenant is broken, this will be me. God in Jesus Christ on the cross was torn apart for us. Do you remember the circumcision? Jesus Christ was cut off from the Trinitarian Godhead at the cross. He was cut off from his deepest relationship. Do you see how we've been brought in? By the blood of Jesus Christ. We were aliens, and now we're citizens. We were out, now we're in. We were, we were foreigners. We were, now we're adopted sons and daughters because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The dividing walls that stood between us and God and the dividing walls that stand between you and I now have come down in the body of Christ on the cross. They're no more. He's made peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Imagine if the world saw the church as a place where hostility was dead. 
verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You know, in, in Acts, there was this whole debate about whether a Gentile needed to become Jewish before they could become a Christian. And, and what we seek from that is the answer is no, is that both of us, maybe one was closer to God than the other, but both of us needed reconciling to God in one spirit. And now the fact is, is the spirit of God has come, and the spirit of God that lives inside of the Jew also lives inside of the Gentile. The spirit of God that lives in me also lives in you. And we have a deeper connection than than most of us really grasp with one another. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And as I read these verses, I want you to picture this in your mind. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's creating this, this picture out of words where here is Jesus and he's the cornerstone. And he's the foundation and he sets the plumb and, and, and he sets the, the, the whole foundation of this new building and the apostles are there. They're these, these, these eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection who have given us the New Testament and they show us who God is and the prophets are there. These people for hundreds of years who have been telling us about God and we're built on top of them and all of us are being joined together and we're becoming this awesome structure that it becomes this new temple of God because God wants to dwell with his people. It's this beautiful image of what it means to be a part of this new community with God at the center of it. And it's a new community that, is, that comes, that is bought, that is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why on earth would we seek to raise up divisions and walls between us that Christ has torn down? Why? Do you see what an offense to God it would be to rebuild walls that his son tore down through his death? You know, the church struggles to maintain unity. I mean the church. And oftentimes it has been against doctrines, important doctrines, eternal truths about who God is and what he's revealed about himself. But you know the reality is, is oftentimes the thing that divides us, it's not, it's not the Trinity, it, it's not the virgin birth, it's not the deity of Christ. The things that often divide churches are temporal issues that we feel so strongly and passionate about today that tomorrow disappear. But in the meantime, we do damage to one another. Temporal issues, things that are here today but gone tomorrow. But there's a spirit underneath all of this and there's a question underneath all of this, really. What will we as a people choose to be when we don't see eye to eye on these temporal issues. And the reality is, is we've got three choices in front of us. The first is to divide. The first is to take a vote. And if, if you lose the vote, then you get the nine o'clock hour. And if you win the vote, you get to come to the 1045. 
We'll separate. Or we'll separate even further, and some of you go your way, and some of you go another way. If you don't think that happens, you haven't been a part of church very long. Temporal issues that cause this division. Division, that's, that's, that's one way we could choose. The other way we could, we could go is with policies. We could make up some rules that govern us on the inside of the church. We could make up some, some, some things that would, that would keep peace, that would keep people from slamming doors and yelling at one another and, and, and going your separate way. We, we could come up with some policies, policies that, 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 that sort of keep it loosely together, but in the end don't actually create unity. Because so often what we find in human relationships is transactional views of relationship. Transactional views of relationship is that I will treat you based on how you treat me. I want you to love me the way that I want to be loved. And if you'll love me, then I will love you back. It's transitional, transactional view of relationships. See, that's a human contract. A human contract is two parties coming together and say, I'll do this if you do this. But if you fail to do this, I am released from my obligations. A covenant is different. A covenant says it doesn't matter what you do, I will still fulfill what I promised to do. It doesn't matter. I will love you no matter how you love me back, or even if you don't love me back. Paul writes this in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you think about the rights of the Son of God, you read that he had the right not to be punched in the face when he answered truthfully to a member of the Sanhedrin. Do you believe that he had a right not to have a crown of thorns pressed into his skull? Do you believe that he had the right not to have the back uh, flayed from his flesh with a whip? Do you believe that he had the right not to have his hands nailed into boards? The right not to be lifted up naked for the world to see and to slowly suffocate to death? Do you believe that the Son of God had the right not to die that way? See, what he was entitled to was worship. What he was entitled to is, is glory and honor. And yet he laid all of his rights down. And he died. He willingly relinquished his rights so that we might be included into his family. Is that the way we are? Is that the way we behave? Will we look at, at our rights, whether it's the right for health or the right to be free from whatever, will we look at our rights and we say, I will follow Jesus. And rather than demand my rights, I will lay my rights down. See, there's a difference between just keeping the peace and having unity. The world is looking at the church. And what do they see? 
Do they see a people that even though they don't agree on stuff are so humble that they will lay down their lives for one another? That they will give up for one another? We live in a world that is torn apart by everybody wanting their own way by everybody putting himself first, by everybody trying to be God. What if the church was different? What if we would rest with our walls down because of Christ who knocked them all down for us? Holy Spirit, the power to um, the power to lay our lives down can only come from you. We will continually try to pick them back up. One moment we we will be humble. One moment we will let it go. We will do what you've asked us to do. We will follow Jesus, but the next moment we will be taking it all back. Spirit of God, I pray that you would enable us to truly know what it means to lay it all down. Because in laying it all down, we actually get the biggest prize of all. By losing this life, we save the life that matters. We get an eternity with you. We get to be your dwelling place. And all the emptiness that we feel now will be filled up by you. Every corner of our being that's longing to be in, that knows what it means to be on the outside, that knows what it means to be alone, isolated, all of it be filled up with your presence as we're knit together into this new community. I pray that we would be a people that give our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen.